0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 272. It's titled, Is Inflation Over or Understated? I discussed inflation, what it is, back in episode 162 and 190. It's the rise of prices over time. And it's caused, in theory, by the amount of money in the economy increasing at a faster rate than the amount of goods and services available to purchase. If the amount of new dollars available is growing at a faster rate than the amount of new goods and services that can push up prices. The primary activity that leads to the creation of new money is commercial bank lending. When banks make a new loan, that creates a new digital bank deposit, which the borrower can then spend. The more banks lend, the more money created, and the greater the risk inflation will accelerate. Now, that's what causes inflation in theory. But in order for inflation to occur, businesses need to raise their prices. They need to sense that in order to make a profit, they need to increase what they're charging for goods and services. And we'll see in this episode that's a little bit subjective. It's hard to tell if inflation or prices are increasing and at what rate. In this episode, we're going to look at how inflation is measured and why that leads to such controversy. In the U.S., the primary measurement of inflation is calculated by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's the Consumer Price Index. It represents the CPI, all goods and services purchased for consumption by the reference population. And we typically in this episode, we're going to focus on the U measure, which is basically across all households and businesses. They break it down into 200 categories arranged in eight major groups. Food and beverages, housing, apparel, transportation, medical care, recreation, education, communication, and other goods and services. Within the calculation, it includes government-charged user fees, such as water and sewer charges, registration fees for cars, vehicle tolls. It also includes sales tax and other excise taxes, but it doesn't include income taxes. So it's taxes related to specific goods and services. The Bureau of Labor Statistics and other statistical agencies around the world create a basket of goods and services known as the reference basket. There's controversy about how inflation is measured and it surrounds this basket of goods and services and what goes into the basket and are there changes to the basket over time, which gets down to what exactly are we trying to capture when we measure inflation? Are we trying to calculate the change in prices or are we trying to estimate the change in the cost of living? A cost of living index, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, measures changes over time in the amount that consumers need to spend to reach a certain utility level or standard of living. In other words, satisfaction. What does a consumer need to spend to be satisfied, to reach a certain standard of living? That product mix, that service mix, could change based on how consumers measure that satisfaction or that utility level. Traditionally, in measuring the consumer price index, there was no substitute. It was always the same basket of goods and services. But that was changed to reflect the changing consumption patterns of consumers, and what the Bureau of Labor Statistics found is that the increase in cost to consumers of maintaining their level of well-being tends to be somewhat less than the increase in the cost of the mix of goods and services they previously purchased. By substituting out other goods and services to maintain the standard of living results in lower inflation if we're just looking at the change of price of goods and services. The mix changes as consumers change, even though their well-being stays the same. This is controversial. John Williams runs the site Shadows Stats. He says individuals need for and use of CPI measures generally is tied to personal financial decisions or planning in terms of wage or income growth adjustments, contract or benefit price adjustments, or targeting financial returns that would stay ahead of inflation. Accordingly, individuals look to the government CPI as a measure of the cost of living of maintaining a constant standard of living, as well as measuring that cost of living in terms of -of out-of-pocket expenses. Where the CPI at one time met those parameters desired by the public, Government efforts turned the CPI away from measuring the price changes in a fixed-weight basket of goods and services to a quasi-substitution-based basket of goods, which destroyed the concept of CPI as a measure of the cost of living, maintaining a constant standard of living. In other words, Williams believes there should be no changes in the basket. What was good in 1950 in terms of the goods and services for that standard of living that should stay the same. So if product mixes changes, consumers' preferences changes, if they substitute out, we should not make changes in the basket. So it's more of an apples-to-apples apples comparison. That's not how it's done, which is why he produces what's known as shadow stats. And if you look at that, at least the graphs, because you have to pay to get the actual data, it runs about 2% higher than the other measures of inflation that we'll discuss. Now, the other side of the equation is there are those that argue that inflation is overstated. Here's an editorial by Phil Graham, who's the former chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, and John F. Early, who served twice as an assistant commissioner at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's an editorial in the Wall Street Journal where they wrote, if consumers always bought the same amounts of the same goods and services, the CPI would provide an accurate picture of inflation. But when the relative price changes, taste shift, or new products are introduced. Consumers substitute relatively cheap or more preferred items for relatively expensive and less preferred one. As cell phone prices have fallen, for instance, consumers have shifted away from landlines. The CPI calculations didn't capture The price drop from that substitution. Now, in some extent, they do. I mean, there are measures that the CPI uses, and one way to do that is they'll, instead of just taking, let's say, one fruit, apples, or one particular type of apples, they'll look at a category of fruits and see how that group changes. So they do a geometric average. And so that does allow for some substitution, but Graham and Early argue that they doesn't happen enough, that there's product improvements that are missed. For example, they write studies of personal electronic devices showed overstatements of between 3.6 and 5.8 percentage points annually because the value of new features was either understated or missed completely. They also say that prices of medical care are overstated Because they don't take into account sufficiently, the greater efficiency and improved outcomes from new drugs and procedures. Products and services are getting better. They provide more satisfaction, and it isn't always adequately captured in consumer price index data. Graham and Early also point out that inflation price indexes attempt to address new or improved items by splitting their prices into quality improvements and pure price changes. But they say that current methods of doing that consistently overstate inflation. How bad is it? We need to look at some of the inflation measures. The primary one that's used is the CPI for all urban consumers, or CPIU. It reflects changes to the methodology on a going-forward basis, such as the changes in 1980 and 1999. The CPIU Research Series, or CPIURS, incorporates many of the CPIU improvements retrospectively, so looking back in time, so it allows for better historical comparisons. And then a third index, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, improves by Using changes in real time. So there's no delays. So it goes back in time and it also has the changes in real time. If we go back from 1977 to 2018, the CPIU measure of annual inflation is 3.47%. The CPIU research series, which takes the changes and makes them retrospective, had an inflation measure of 3.24%. And then the PCE, which does the changes in real time had a measure of 2.96%. And that's what we would expect, that a measure that doesn't adjust for these substitutions and quality improvements going back in time should have a higher inflation measure. And it does, 3.47% versus 3.24% for CPIU and 2.96% for PCE. Generally, the gap is about 0.23%. How big a difference is that? Well, $100 back in 1977 would be worth $404.94 if we use CPIU at 3.47%. If we use the CPIU RS, it would be worth $369.33. So about a $35 difference. And using the PCE, we'd be at $330.68. So roughly. compared to the CPIU. So over time, it can make a difference. Why does this even matter? Well, depending on which inflation index is used, you can come to different conclusions regarding things such as poverty or income. For example, Graham and Early point out that the Census Bureau uses CPIU to inflate poverty thresholds and finds the incidence of poverty was unchanged from 1975 to 2017. But if we use the CPIURS, it shows poverty decline by 14%. And if we use the PCE, it shows poverty decline by 26%. Looking at average hourly earnings, if we use a measure called the CPIW, which is similar to the CPU, but more for workers, it showed a 6% increase in real average hourly earnings between 1975 and 2017. But if we use the CPIURS, which again shows changes but does it retroactively, it showed real hourly earnings rose 10%. Different conclusions. How inflation is calculated has been especially controversial in Rwanda, where Paul Kagame He's a former general. He ended the genocide as he led rebel forces back in 1994. He's been president of the country since the year 2000 and is generally held as a model of development in terms of helping his citizens, the poor, get out of poverty. Official government statistics show that in the past decade, the economy has expanded by 8% per year and the share of people classified as poor has fallen by seven percentage points from 2011 to 2017. So 38% of the populace is considered to be poor. There's some controversy regarding those figures. The Financial Times did an investigation led by Tom Wilson and David Blood. They point out that measuring levels of poverty, like calculating other economic indicators, is a complex process in which different assumptions need to be made about factors ranging from the type, and value of the products consumed by the population to how prices are likely to have changed over time and geography. They believe that inflation is much higher than the official government statistics, and as a result, poverty is much higher, that the economy in Rwanda is not doing as good. On the other side, the World Bank and the Rwandan government said, no, these figures are accurate. And it really comes down to inflation. Sam Desieri, he's a senior research at Belgium's University of Leuven, has studied Rwanda's poverty statistics for many years. He believes that inflation for food has increased 9.4% a year, while the official rate of food inflation is 5.3%. He writes, the higher the inflation rate, the more poverty increases. Is Rwanda the success that the government and the World Bank suggest or not? The Financial Times investigation concluded that poverty actually increased by 6.6 percentage points in Rwanda, not decreased over the past decade. The Economist concludes, questioning Rwanda's statistics may seem to be no more than quibbling over numbers, but at stake is Mr. Kagame's reputation and that of the developmental model he embodies. Before we take a closer look at consumers' attitudes toward inflation, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. Why do governments spend so much time trying to measure inflation? Well, in a paper called The Psychology of Inflation, Eduardo Gaffeo and Julia Kanzian highlighted three facts regarding public attitudes about inflation. First, they point out that ordinary people think inflation is a major phenomenon in their everyday lives and an important national policy issue. So if households and businesses care about inflation, then we ought to measure it. Second, they point out that people dislike inflation, even when it's low. One of their main concerns, is it lowers their personal living standards, but there's also the idea that other businesses or greedy people will take advantage of inflation to exploit others, maybe raise prices even more. The third thing they point out is the general public associates inflation with negative consequences like higher political stability and lower economic growth. A different study by David Leiser and Ronan Aroge talked about The good begets good heuristic. And what they found is that if there's an economic statistic that comes out good, that consumers associate that statistic with other good things regarding the economy, even though they might not be related at all. And so when inflation increases or there's any inflation, consumers consider that bad and they project that badness onto other economic data. So governments want to measure inflation accurately, recognizing it's pretty subjective, as we've seen, in terms of what goes into the basket. What about quality improvements? Central banks are really concerned about something known as inflation anchoring. Are inflation expectations changing? If consumers and businesses believe inflation is increasing, they might want to hoard and put additional strain on capacity. Businesses might start raising prices more because they think inflation is increasing. How are inflation expectations measured? Well, one way is through surveys. The New York Fed does a survey, the University of Michigan, the Conference Board. Generally, the most recent data for the New York Fed shows consumer expectations for inflation over the next three years is about 2.5% per year. It's about the same level As the University of Michigan, the Conference Board's inflation expectation study shows consumers think inflation will be at just under five percent over the next year. So there are even within the surveys are different expectations. The other way to analyze expectations is to look at what's known as the break-even inflation rate for Treasury Inflation Protection Securities or TIPS. We can look at the yield on Treasury bonds. So the 10-year treasury bond yield is 1.7%. And then we can subtract out the yield on the 10-year tip, which is 0.1%. So right now, the break-even inflation rate or the expected inflation rate priced into the 10-year tip is 1.6%. Central banks then worry about inflation expectations. Governments want to calculate what inflation is. What is most important to us is what are we experiencing? Are we seeing an increase in the cost of our standard of living? What do you find in your life? Do you ever notice changes in prices such as food or gasoline? Certainly, most people, if you're renting, you notice if your rent is going up. We've talked about housing prices going up, but day to day consumer expenditures, I typically don't notice changes in prices, but others do. What about quality improvements? My daughter has been working potato harvest. We woke up at 3.30 in the morning. She still wasn't home. The pro was worried. We couldn't get her on the cell phone. I got into the car and I drove the, it must be 15 miles out to where she was harvesting. It was a dark night. There wasn't a whole lot of light. As I was getting near the farm, This car came at me with really, really bright headlights. It turned out to be the Prius that my daughter was riding. And I thought about this car, much different than the cars that I drove as a teenager or in my early 20s. The Prius has Xeon headlights. It shoves you back in the lane if you happen to go out of your lane. It has adaptive cruise. It has airbags. It has all these quality improvements that should be reflected, I believe, in inflation measures, that even though the car is priced higher, once we calculate the impact of these improvements, it's just a better car, that that should be reflected in the change in price or how we measure the change of prices over time. Clearly, though, there is inflation. There was a really interesting article in the New York Times that it compared four middle class families and looked at their budget. I also looked for some historical budgets. So I found a study from 1998 where the Census Bureau put together a standard budget for the median family. The median family in 1998, this would be a couple with two children, made $41,487 and took home $3,044 per month. One of the families they profiled, that the New York Times profiled in this article, Lauren and Trevor Koch of Sheboygan, Wisconsin, they take home pretty much the same amount, $3,232. Again, that budget back in 1998 was based on $3,044. So I actually compared what they were spending money on. Food and supplies in 1998, $721. In the current budget, for the Koch family it's $800 about the same housing $792 back in 1998 $600 for this family utilities about the same 246 in 1998 $212 today transportation $558 in 1998 $482 for this family today education 1998 $470 for this family The education falls under student loans where they're paying $550 per month. Now, a big difference was health care. Back in 1998, it cost the typical family $164, but this family has no health insurance, the parents. The two children are under badger care, so they're getting some government health care. That's a big difference. Health care is expensive. And so when you look at the standard of living of this family, even though they're spending the same amount as a typical family back in 1998, their quality of life, their standard of living is lower because they don't have the health care and they don't have a surplus. There are a number of other categories such as apparel and miscellaneous in that 1998 budget that there just isn't money for the Koch family. And as a result, they're in debt. Their credit card payment every month is $340. Spending the same amount today versus 1998 for a family leads to a lower quality of life. And that's why the median family income today is $63,000, not $41,000 like it was in 1998. They also profiled several other families. What I found surprising is the amount on food didn't really change. As they took in more income, but they ended up spending more on housing. That $600 the Koch family is spending on housing, it's just for an apartment. If they wanted a three-bedroom house, they would probably be spending closer to $1,500 a month. If they wanted newer cars, they would be spending more. If they wanted health insurance, they would be spending more. The point is, inflation is real. Spending the same amount of money for a family of four today that you did in 1998 leads to a lower standard of living and more vulnerability. But what about ourselves? Do you track your spending every month or every year? Do you track, at least qualitatively, your standard of living? I think that's important. Our goal is to see if we can. Increase our standard of living, our satisfaction with the quality of our life without necessarily spending more money by looking on a regular basis at the baskets of goods and services that we spend money on. Are we getting satisfaction out of how we spend our funds? Are we able to see prices changing and maybe change the mix around? Now, this gets to value judgments and making sure that we're not just buying things because they're cheaper. And we've talked about this numerous times in the podcast. Make sure we're paying a fair price for what we're paying so that the person producing it is earning a fair wage so that they can have a quality standard of life. That's our discussion on how inflation is measured. Is inflation overstated or understated? I don't think that inflation is significantly higher in actuality than the official statistics. I don't think we can keep that basket of goods and services the same. I think quality improvements are real. I think our preferences change. And as a result, that should be reflected in the official statistics. Now, maybe we can quibble about how those quality improvements are are captured or whether we're capturing all of them to suggest that inflation is actually lower than the official numbers. But generally speaking, I believe inflation is calculated accurately to the extent that it can be accurately calculated, recognizing the subjectivity. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. Why are there? Please sign up for my free insider's guide and I'll email those show notes to you. Each week, at least the links to the show notes to you, as well as an essay I do each week on money, investing, and in the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week, just through your email inbox, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not providing investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and in the economy. Have a great week.